Good morning. I love to travel. Uh, and one of the things that helps me get through a hard or difficult season is having a trip to look forward to. It could be as simple as taking an hour trip from here in Prescott over the hill to Sedona to go hiking. It could be as simple as a two-hour drive to Phoenix to have lunch with a friend, or it could mean packing a suitcase, navigating through TSA, and going somewhere on a longer trip. When my wife and I got married, one of our friends gave us some counsel. They said, hey, don't just take trips once you start having kids as a giant family. Have trips where it's just you two together. They told us, if your kids are going along with you, it's a trip. If you're just going with your spouse, it's a vacation. And I have experienced that 100%. So uh, we've decided every five years we're going to do a longer trip together. And so at our fifth year anniversary, we went up to Northern California. We were around Sonoma and Santa Rosa. And one afternoon, we were driving past and we pulled into the Armstrong Forest, which is a redwood forest north of San Francisco. And it was an amazing experience, those trees that climbed over 300 feet high. And you just find yourself feeling so small. Uh, You feel small when you look at the stars, but the stars are so far away, it's something different to be standing in a forest of just trees that are so, so huge. And I just took it in that day. Well, later on, actually, it was actually the last couple years, uh, my friend Steve Carter helped me to understand more deeply some of the truths around Redwoods. If you recognize Steve's face, he was a guest speaker for us on Palm Sunday in 2020. And Steve released a book last year called The Thing Beneath the Thing. And he went like deep into the redwoods. And I made some notes because he nerded out for sure. He helped me learn that redwoods can grow about 10 feet per year. And 40% of their water comes from drinking the fog that comes through. Their trunks can hold up to 8,000 gallons of water, which is just incredible. Redwoods can survive any drought. They're fire resistant. They're bug resistant. But one of the craziest things that that Steve helped me see was kind of a twofold fact. He discovered that redwoods can grow to almost 400 feet tall, almost 40 stories. But the other piece of this fact that blew me away is that their roots only go down 9 to 12 feet. Now, I'm not even 6 feet tall, so the max their roots go down is twice my height. And yet they go 400 feet in the air. How? This fact. Their roots go out another 100 feet looking for other redwoods to interlock roots with. On their own, a single redwood cannot survive barely a 10-mile-an-hour wind gust. But together interlocked in their roots with one another, they are impossible to knock over. And this truth in creation reminded me of a truth in Scripture. In Ecclesiastes 4, the writer says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up, but pity the one who falls without another one to lift him up. And if two lie down together, they can also keep warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. See, I I think that each of us are like a redwood. On our own, we are simply not that 
strong. But on our own and with others, we are a reflection of the majesty and the beauty and the wonder and the imagination of God. And yet, you and I were not made to endure adversity alone. We were made to thrive in community. And in the same way that a a small wind can topple over a single redwood by itself, you and I can be toppled over by some of the mildest forms of adversity. But when we choose to interlock our roots with one another, God introduces strength in us and enables us to endure. We're in a series this month called Practices, where we're talking about what are some basic things that we have it within our power to do that help us to take our next steps with Jesus. And we're in this series talking about how do we put these practices into practice. We'll never do them perfectly. Our goal is not perfection. Our goal is progression. How can we get a little bit better every day as we do these things? So if, if you didn't do last week's practice, that's okay. We're not here to be perfect. We're here to make progress. And if you've been following with us in week one, we talked about meditating on Scripture. Last week, we talked about prayer as conversation, and we invited you to use this practice called examine. And then today in week three, we're talking about committing to community. And here's the big idea if you're taking notes. Community is never found apart from commitment. Community, the experience that those redwoods illustrate for us of interlocking roots and strength, that picture that Ecclesiastes 4 gives us of of three strands that are woven together that cannot be broken, that kind of community is never found apart from commitment. Now, I want to begin by sharing a little bit of, of a confessional with you. I was thinking this week as I was writing this message that I'm not sure I could have delivered this message two years ago. Because I don't think that I would have been able to get over the true state of my own community at that point to be able to speak to you. See, I've never given a sermon that I was an expert in practicing before, and I've never delivered a sermon that I've perfectly practiced after. That's just kind of the reality. I'm I'm preaching this stuff not because I live it perfectly. But two years ago, I I was in a situation where I began to take stock of my own relationships, my own community, and the truth is I was isolated. There were very few people who knew the true state of what was going on inside of me and what I was carrying. And most of the friendships that I had were people that I worked with. Or my wife. And that isn't necessarily a bad thing. They were actually really good friends. But I don't think it's great to have all your friends be people who report to you or you're their boss. And my wife can't meet all of my friendship needs. And so at the end of 2019, I began to realize that some things needed to change. And so I set some goals for 2020 that I was going to intentionally spend time in person with two or three people every month. And then 2020 happened. So I carry that goal into 2021 as well. And I stand here today not as somebody who has mastered this idea of community, but at the end of 2021, as I was reflecting back on the year, I was pointing out the moments where I would not have endured the adversity if I was a single tree standing in the storm. I would only have endured 
by the grace of God experienced through the people that he brought around me. And there's a handful of people today who do know the burdens that I'm carrying, who do know what's going on inside of me. And I can tell you that has made a tremendous difference. And I think that there are some of you who are where I was two years ago. And today I want to pull a little bit of an Apollo 13 moment and declare that we have a problem. And I want to talk about this problem today. The first component of this problem is isolation. If you're filling in the blanks today on your handout, there's three blanks at the beginning, and isolation is the first one. We're living at a time in which we are experiencing unprecedented levels of isolation, sometimes by circumstance, forces around us we can't control, and yet sometimes by choice. And that isolation is leading to what one writer, Susan Metz, calls the loneliness epidemic. She released a book last year based upon a a wide-ranging study, and here's what she found. She found that 19% of boomers, that's those who were born between 1946 and 1964, report feeling lonely for at least some of each day. One in five boomers report at least once, or for one portion of their day, they feel lonely. When you go down to the next youngest generation, that's Gen X, those who were born between 65 and 80, the number goes up to 33%, one-third. And then if you get on to the next generation, my generation, the millennials, you know, the ones who broke everything in the world, <laughs> born between 81 and 96, that's 46%. It's almost one in two. On a daily basis, reporting that for some portion of the day, they feel lonely. Before the events of the last couple years, the nation of Great Britain began to realize the impact this was having on their economy. And they began to ascribe a 10-figure, that's the billions, impact that loneliness was having on their economy. And so Theresa May, the prime minister of Britain in 2018, she named a loneliness minister to her cabinet. Here's what she said. She says, loneliness is a reality for far too many people in our society today. And it can affect anyone of any age or any background. It doesn't discriminate. Across our communities, there are people who can go for days, weeks, or even a month without seeing a friend or a family member. And friends, that was written in 2018, before any of us even knew the word social distancing before any of us even owned any masks. The second problem is individualism. It isn't just isolation, it's individualism. And if you're wondering, yes, the third one will have an I too. If you want to get, jump ahead and guess, you can. But, but some of us live within an individualism that is the product of a philosophy. We say things like, I don't need anybody else. I can do life on my own. And for some of us, our individualism is a a mindset. We say, I I don't need others. I will figure this out by myself. For others of us, it is a a reaction to to the life we've experienced. We say, hey, I've been hurt by other people, so I'm just going to go it alone. And then there are others of us who have decided that it's the easy path. We say, it's just easier to be without others. It's less drama, less problems. I'm just going to go it alone. The third I is idealism. Idealism is a huge contributor to the state of isolation and loneliness that we have. Just by a show of hands, how many of you have moved to this area within the last seven years, since 2015? Keep your hands up. 
Okay? You can put your hands down. How many of you have lived here for longer than seven years? Raise your hand. Okay, if you haven't raised your hand yet, you're not listening. Because <laughs> those were the only two options. But for those of you who raised your hand first, who came here from somewhere else, this is a huge danger for you. Because you probably left a profound sense of community wherever you were. And you've moved here trying to build a new life with friends. And so the people that you're meeting here, you're comparing to the people that you used to know. Maybe the clubs that you were a part of or the church that you were a part of. And I just want to give you just a, a truth. It may be hard to hear, but it's true. There is no ideal community. I'm not saying that you didn't have an incredible experience where you came from. What I'm telling you is that there is no ideal, perfect community that doesn't have warts or flaws or brokenness. I say this as somebody who moved here in the last seven years and had to start over again. And this is a real danger in the world that we're in today in church. Because here's what Diedrich Bonhoeffer says. He says, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community. If you have an idealized vision of the church that you're looking for or the Christian community that you're looking for or the small group you're looking for and you press up against the real people and the real community you meet and you hold them to this idealized standard, you are never going to be satisfied. And people are going to feel like that they can't ever please you, they can't ever meet your needs, and whatever community's out there, you're in danger of destroying because it's just not good enough for you. And I begin here with isolation and individualism and idealism to say, hey, as we talk about committing to a community today, I realize there are some very real obstacles to this. That for some of us, we know all too well, but maybe you haven't named them. Maybe you haven't identified them. And it's not until we identify what is holding us back that we can overcome it. And so what I want to do at the time I have today is I want to take us into the only place I think we should go to when trying to experience, so what is the model for community? And that is the life of Jesus. And so today what I want to do, if you're taking notes, is I want to give you three components of Jesus' experience of community and then walk through how we might commit to the same thing. So here's the first one. Jesus' experience of community was the tension of large group impact with small group intimacy. The experience that Jesus had of community was he was a part of this larger group that was having an impact on the world, and yet he was also experiencing intimacy in the context of a smaller group. If you have your Bible, you might be going, when is he ever going to get to the Bible? Now. Open it up to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 today. We're going to be in a couple different places because there's not one particular moment that kind of gives us the entire full picture that we need to see today. So we'll be bouncing around. But in Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, this is what we read. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I'll make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat 
putting their nets in order. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. So what Jesus does at the beginning of his ministry, he's, if you know what's happened in Mark 1, he's been baptized, he's been tempted out in the desert. He comes back to the real world. And the first thing he does is he begins gathering people to himself who will become his closest friends. We'll see later on in this message that the three that were closest to him were three of the four he just called to follow him. But he isn't done here with these guys. Also, in Luke 8, we see a similar moment happen. In Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, this is what we see. After Jesus was traveling from one town and village to another, preaching and telling the good news of the kingdom of God, the twelve were with him. And also some women who'd been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary called Magdalene. Seven demons had come out of her. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, Susanna, and many others who were supporting them from their possessions. So what we see with Jesus is that he was gathering a group of people, some of which were with him every day, some of which knew him really intimately. But what we see in the life of Jesus is that he was part of these large group moments where he fed people 5,000 at a time, 5,000 men, probably over 10,000 if you include the women and children. And he had a small group of people was in the midst of every day that he intentionally called and invited into a smaller sense of community and intimacy. And the same thing happens today in, in our church. For us, community happens in rows like this on Sunday, and then we encourage each other to gather in smaller groups and circles during the week. And it happens in both places. Sometimes on Sunday morning, as you're walking in or you're walking out, you'll have a conversation with somebody that you see every week, and you'll catch up on what's happening. Hey, you told me last Sunday that you were going to have a test this week to determine if that thing in your body is cancerous or not. Hey, you told me that last week. Hey, tell me what happened today. What was the result of that? What do you need? But then also there's places where you can gather in an even smaller group to share even more than you might share in the hallway or over coffee or in the lobby. And and this is the place where community happens. It happens in a large group, but there is greater intimacy in the smaller setting, in the small groups. And it's a reminder for us that following Jesus is not just a Sunday thing. It is a Sunday thing, and what we do here matters, but it isn't just a Sunday thing. And for some of you, this is the place that I, I want to encourage you lovingly. You've told people over the last few weeks, as this year started, that you're isolated, that you're lonely. Maybe you're part of that loneliness epidemic there, the 19, the 33, the 46%. And yet, you're at home watching the service today. Now, I know people who I can name right now who are at home because of health reasons, or you're traveling. But there are others of you that were at a concert this past week, or you're at the lighting of the tree downtown, or Akronite. And you've told people that you're lonely and isolated, but you're watching by yourself from home. And in all love, I want to encourage you that what you need is to step out of that isolated experience on Sundays into a community again. You've gotten in a habit over the last two years that is only facilitating the loneliness and isolation. Or maybe you're here on Sunday mornings, but you're not involved in a group. And you leave before things are done, and you get here after things are started. And nobody knows you. And yet you feel isolated and lonely. 
And I would encourage you that you can only be loved out of loneliness to the extent that you're known. And it's a lot easier to be known in somebody's living room during the week even than it is here on Sunday morning. And I just want to encourage you that the experience that Jesus has was he was part of a large group because we can do together more than we can do alone. But he was also in a smaller group where he was known and he knew. And for some of us, that's the step we need to take this year out of isolation and into intimacy. The second piece of Jesus' experience of community was that he experienced a pattern of time and patience and vulnerability. See, the community that Jesus had with his disciples, it didn't magically appear overnight. It wasn't like in Luke 1, Mark 1, or Luke 8, he called these people to follow him, and then immediately they were best friends. It wasn't like after just a couple days of hanging out together, they were inseparable. It was a pattern of time and patience and vulnerability that led them to this deep sense of intimacy. And what I noticed this past week as I was preparing this message is that Jesus was profoundly vulnerable with his disciples. If you have your Bible still, I want you to go to John 6, 66. I know that we shouldn't use that term or that number anywhere, but, but something amazing happens in John 6. John 6 is one of the most honest chapters in all of the New Testament. Jesus just fed the 5,000 men, maybe over 10,000 people. And those people come back to Jesus, and because he's Jesus, he knows what's in their heart. They don't want him. They want their bellies fed again. And so Jesus flips the script on them and has a conversation with them about what he really came to do and what they really need. And in some comments that even 2,000 years later are still a little bit unnerving, he says to them, if you want to be a part of me, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they were like, this is not what we signed up for. Now, he was, he was kind of giving a, a picture in advance of communion. But at the end of this moment, right before John six sixty six, we see that people decide they no longer want to be a part of what Jesus is doing. And John six sixty six begins, from that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. People decided they didn't want to be part of what Jesus was doing. And then in John six sixty seven, we see this vulnerable moment from Jesus where he turns to the 12 and says, you don't want to go away too, do you? All of us know the feeling of being abandoned and betrayed by people we thought we could trust. That person that you thought was always going to be in your life and always be there for you, and then one day they fail that. And so Jesus turns to them and he's like, are you guys going to leave me too? Are you going to abandon me too? Do you want to go away too? Is this too much for you too? Now, what, what happens next, I, I won't go into out of time today, but you see Peter come through with a profound moment of confession. But I think that emotion that's expressed here in the vulnerability of Jesus is something we shouldn't just jump right over. I mentioned last week that we were going to come back to the moment in the garden that we talked about 
when it came to prayer. And in the version that Matthew tells in Matthew 26, we see Jesus being vulnerable again. It says, then Jesus came with them to the place called Gethsemane, and he told the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And then taking Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to James and John and Peter, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Jesus is being profoundly vulnerable to share with them the weight of the idea of going to the cross and taking on all of the sins of the world. And he invites these three disciples who he is closest to. They're the closest things to his best friends on earth. And he says to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. That's vulnerability. And it reflects the trust that he has in them. And what we see with Jesus is that that kind of trust is built over time and it opens the door for vulnerability. You aren't vulnerable with somebody the first time you meet them. And if you are, it means that the weight you're carrying is so great that you just have to offload it. No, what happens typically in a healthy relationship is like a door that you slowly open. As trust is built, you begin letting somebody in piece by piece by piece by piece over time as they show themselves worthy of that kind of trust. And what hit me this week as I was reading through the Gospels is that even Jesus was vulnerable. Which is why I want to encourage us to make Jesus our model for relationships rather than some other cultural model. I've been told before when I've talked about vulnerability in church that vulnerability is a feminine characteristic and men aren't vulnerable. And while I know that vulnerability comes easier to some people than others of both genders, I would push on those, and maybe this is you today, who say that men aren't vulnerable or I don't do vulnerability, that perhaps the reason you don't is that you've set up another standard of manhood other than Jesus. And if your standard of manhood doesn't allow for vulnerability, then you've usurped Jesus' place as the standard. Because the standard of healthy humanhood is Jesus for both genders. And Jesus was vulnerable. Now, I'm not saying that everyone is worthy of your vulnerability. For some people, it's harder to be vulnerable with people of the opposite sex. So if you're part of a small group, this might mean that you need to break up at times into men and women separately to facilitate that kind of vulnerability. It might even mean that there's a smaller group of maybe two or three that you're vulnerable with. But if you say, I can't and I won't be vulnerable and I don't need to be, then I'm not sure you can really follow Jesus and where he would lead you. And I would encourage you that that sometimes we think if we can just get around people, this would solve the problem. But I would encourage you that loneliness is not always a proximity issue. It can often just be an intimacy issue. You know, you can be lonely and be married. 
You can be surrounded by people and still feel alone. It's not about the people that are in proximity to you. It's the level of intimacy that you're sharing with them. And the final thing that I want to share with you about the model that Jesus gives us, or the example, is he gives us honesty about the flaws of a community. Jesus doesn't just give us a picture of how it should look or what the dynamics of it should look like. He tells us the truth about what we're going to experience when we commit to community. I told you that there's that moment where Jesus says, I'm deeply grieved to the point of death. Well, here's what happens next if you're still in Matthew 26. It says, going a little farther, Jesus fell face down and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he came back to his disciples and found them sleeping. He asked Peter, so you couldn't stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away. Jesus did and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. What happens? He came again and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. After leaving them, he went away again and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And what did he come back and find? He came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? See, the time is near. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. See, Jesus, in his moment of great need, his his time in which he was deeply grieved to the point of death, he was vulnerable with his community. He let them in. He shared with them the weight that that he was carrying. And what had happened? He was hurt. Guys, just pray with me and hang in here with me. I'm grieved to the point of death. And they fall asleep. Have you ever asked somebody to be there for you? And then they weren't. Have you ever asked somebody to pray for you? And then they forgot. You ever told somebody, here's when I need you to be there, and they weren't? Jesus knows. That's why I love Hebrews 4 that says that Jesus is is a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses because he's been tempted in every way. Jesus knows what it means to be part of a community that's flawed. And in his experience of community here on earth, he experienced betrayal. The the one disciple who wasn't there in the garden was Judas because he was out betraying him. The text says that when Jesus was arrested in the garden right after this conversation he has with the sleeping disciples, says that all of his disciples fled. They abandoned him. In a few hours, Jesus is going to be tried in an unjust, illegal trial, and across the courtyard, he's going to lock eyes with Peter as Peter denies even knowing him. Rejection. And he's going to experience the disappointment of watching people say they're going to do something and then doing something else. I love that in the picture Jesus gives us of community, it's not an ideal one, it's a real one. So that we can know that he sympathizes with our experiences. You see, I I think we're living in a moment when the church has earned some critique. I, I think... Each of us could share 
personally, the experiences we have, or the things we've seen where the church has not lived up to the standard God has set for it. For many of us, the reason that we struggle to commit to community in the context of church is we've been hurt. Maybe the reason you're watching from home is that it's easier to watch than it is to come because of the hurt. I just want to give you a warning today. Beware of becoming a critic. It's one thing to critique something that has a flaw and needs to get better. It's another thing to develop the spirit of becoming a critic. And sometimes it is that spirit of becoming a critic that holds us back from experiencing what God has for us. In his book, Screwtape Letters, where he imagines conversations between fictional demons, C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, Surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster or a connoisseur of churches. The search for a suitable church makes the man a critic when the enemy wants him to be a pupil. I love living in Prescott, especially this time of year. But one of the flaws in our community is that we have a revolving door in almost every church. Many people have been a part of multiple churches and maintain even partial commitments to multiple churches at the same time. While also talking to their friends about how their relationships aren't what they want, and they're more lonely and isolated than they want to be. And I'm not here to tell you that this is a perfect church. No, we got flaws, moles, warts. And the closer you get, the more you'll see them. But until you commit somewhere, you don't get the full benefit of community. And that's what my friend Steve showed me in a redwood forest. He said he went back to the forest and he laid down in the forest and was looking up at the trees. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this ranger walked up on him. And he was kind of surprised. He thought he was alone. He felt weird because he was looking up at the trees. And he asked the ranger, he said, there's this, this canopy of trees that's in a circle around a spot where it's obvious that a, a tree died. How did this happen in a forest? And the ranger said, when the tree in the middle died, it's its seeds scattered. And because of the interlocking roots, the trees surrounding that tree sent their nutrients to strengthen those seedlings that they might grow up around where that tree was. And a space in a redwood forest where trees grow in a circle around where a tree has died is called a cathedral. And that's a picture of what Jesus did. He died on a cross. And out of his death, something was resurrected and came to life that is still alive today. Not just in his resurrected body in heaven, but in us. You may have been deeply hurt in the context of community. And that hurt needs to be healed. But out of that hurt, I wonder if God might be able to birth something, a heart 
and a desire and experience of community that not only ministers to you, but becomes a legacy that you leave to others. And I just would encourage you that you only get the benefits of community when you commit to a community. So before we go today, I have some next steps, some seeds to give you today. And here's the first one. I want to encourage you today to take one intentional step towards community before you go to sleep tonight. That's what happened to me two years ago. I said, I'm not going to build a new community overnight, but I can take some small steps. So what if today, before you go to sleep, you pick up your phone and you call somebody and you tell them, hey, guess what? I'm isolated and lonely. I know that we, we don't typically call people on these things anymore. Like this week I texted somebody, hey, can I call you? We would have never thought to do that 20 years ago. We would have just called them. We do still call them phones, right? So they do make phone calls. Maybe this week what you do is you text somebody today and say, hey, can we have coffee this week or can we have lunch? You put some on the calendar and you take an intentional step towards that. Tonight we're going to host a class over at our roster campus called Starting Point and we intentionally saved like five or seven spots with the caterer so we'll have enough food. And maybe what you need to do is you need to go up to the lobby today to the connection table or email Pastor Josh at josh at preston and say, hey, I- I'm isolated and I want to take a step towards community. But I'd encourage you, before today is over, take at least one baby step. Two, I want to encourage you to commit to meeting with a group of people. I almost put a bunch of uh, adjectives in here between A and group, a flawed, an imperfect, a weird group of people. Because it's not the people that make the experience of community what it is. It's the consistency. It's showing up over time with patience and vulnerability that births something. And as Pastor Josh mentioned, we're looking to start new groups next month. And we would love to help you do that. And for some of you, we're going to need your help leading them. And then third, we want to invite you into a practice this week. And it's the practice of confession. When you leave today, you're going to get one of these, a little tool, a little sheet. It says a tool for community confession. Now, I want to encourage you today that some of you might say, Scott, confession, isn't that a Catholic thing? No, James 5.16 says that we're to confess our sins one to another that we might be healed. It's a biblical thing. If you're watching online, the download for you is on the worship resources page. But on the back of this sheet, we walk you through what you need to think about before you engage the discipline of confession. And the first thing is identifying, well, what would I confess? And the simple answer is whatever God convicts your heart of that you just can't get beyond. For me, a couple years ago, it was confessing to some friends that I'm lonely and isolated and nobody knows the burdens I'm carrying. And therefore, they're weighing me down in an unhealthy way. Second question is, with whom should I share this confession? And this is what I want to encourage you. Not everybody is trustworthy enough to hear your confession. Even in church. So there's some questions that help you to flesh it out. And then the third thing is, what if someone shares their confession with me? 
And this is just math. If I'm encouraging all of you to confess, some of you are probably going to be on the receiving end of somebody else's confession. And that's a holy moment. And what you say or don't say, or what you do or don't do, can have tremendous power in that moment. And so we try to equip you with some things that will help you be of service to that person. Again, I'm not here two years later as somebody who has mastered this, but I will tell you that you will never go where God wants you to go by yourself. And you'll never become who Christ created you to be by yourself. And together, we can do more, we can be more, and we can endure more than we ever would alone. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the gift you've given us with each other. We know that that means that we're probably going to get hurt. We're probably going to be disappointed. We're probably going to see people fall short, and we're probably going to do all of those same things for them. But Jesus, we are in more danger than we realize when we're isolated and alone. And though 2020 and 2021 were full of incredible difficulties that even further isolated us, we know that the future is not an easy path. And so we pray in the places where we are isolated and alone that you might put a burden on our heart that that is not where you meant for us to be and that is not where we can stay. We thank you for the picture you give us in the scriptures of you inviting people to walk with you. And we thank you for the way that your grace is at work in our lives and it's coming through the words and presence of other people. We pray that we might this year practice togetherness and community in greater ways. And in the place, Jesus, where we're afraid of coming closer to somebody else because we're still working through the hurt and the pain that happened somewhere else, we pray that you might remind us that just as hurt comes through community, so often healing does too. We pray that we would make room this year for you to birth a new experience of community around us. And we pray that we would open ourselves and commit to that. In your name we pray.